0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 1, Part 2 of the Heart Podcast. I'm Dr. Milagros Castillo Montoya, and I'm co-hosting the Heart Podcast with Omar Romandia.
1: Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scatacoke, Golden Hill Paw and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations.
0: Omar, I'm excited to be continuing the conversation with Dr. Seward and Dr. Harris. Part one of the first episode was really powerful. Several things that they said really stayed with me. And one of those things is that both of them mentioned that this is the only way they know how to teach. And that point emphasizes to me how much of anti-racist teaching is an embodied practice, particularly for faculty of color. And this is a point that is supported in higher education research related to anti-racist teaching. But I found it really illuminating to hear it from their perspective.
1: I couldn't agree more, Milagros. Like you, there were countless ideas that stood out to me. Specifically, Dr. Stewart's point that we are all a work in progress and that we should constantly work to grow in it. Her growth mindset is directly in line with the purpose of our podcast in which we aim to spread knowledge To help others learn and put anti-racist teaching practices into action
0: right well you know something else that stood out to me from that first part of the first episode is how important context is to the enactment of anti-racist teaching dr stewart and dr harris really made me think a lot about how the work of anti-racist teaching cannot be put squarely on the shoulders of anti-racist teachers but instead the higher education institutional leaders must share the burden if they really want anti-racist teaching to occur and thrive at their institutions. And for me, that means that academic leaders need to be committed to creating an ecosystem in which anti-racist teaching can be fostered and enacted.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned that, Milagros. I feel as though anti-racist teaching is a collective effort that should be cultivated by individual change agents. While the current state of affairs is far from perfect, there is certainly plenty of room for growth. Well, let's continue the conversation with Dr. Stewart and Dr. Harris, shall we?
0: You are both amazing scholars doing work using intersectionality as a lens in your scholarship. What influence do you see? And I think I've heard a few of those influences already, but I'm wondering if there might be something you might add about the influence of intersectionality as a frame for the way you think about your teaching. Maybe I could ask Jessica to get us started on that.
2: Yeah, this also was a difficult one to answer. I think because intersectionality for me is also embodied theory, um, it, because I've used it and come to love it so much, but also because I strongly identify as a woman of color. Um, and have these intersecting identities and feel that uh, systems of sexism and racism and classism and genderism influence me on a daily basis, especially when I'm in the classroom. I actually think I'm a little bit more explicit with how intersectionality might influence what I'm doing because intersectionality for me is embodied in CRT. Um, and so I've already mentioned, you know, I, I use different themes or I'm very intentional about whose scholarship I'm putting into the, to the syllabus. Um, but I also am very... I've written about the misuse and the the use of intersectionality in higher education. And so when students, I, students know that I'm going to be very critical about how they're using intersectionality. Because again, intersectionality like anti-racism and CRT has become kind of this buzzword, but also these really powerful frameworks to view higher education. But I think it's really, really important that we don't depoliticize the, the theory, that we don't dilute its power by saying, Oh, you know the intersections of or the intersectionality of identity. Like for some reason that just grates my gears. I was tweeting about it the other day, where it's like intersectionality of identity is not a thing, right? Um, so I'm I really push back, or I really am in trying to make sure that students are are understanding intersectionality, maybe not correctly because I don't think there's a correct way, but in a in a more powerful way, in a less diluted way. And one of the ways I do that is by having students read Crenshaw's 1989 article or 1991 article, um, and and not just using, you know, the MMDI, uh, which is a student development theory and saying that's intersectionality.
0: How do you bring that into the classroom? Like, what do you think those seminal pieces are doing that allows, you know, some of the deeper thinking around intersectionality to surface in your classroom?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I immediately go to the three forms of intersectionality, which in my research on how we've used and misused it, scholars really don't use the three forms and people don't know that there's actually three forms of intersectionality that talks about in the 1991 article, which is um, based on or centered on the rape and battering of of women of color in the US. And these forms are structural intersectionality, representational intersectionality and political intersectionality. You know, I don't wanna lock myself in or others into how they use it, but really political intersectionality is allowing me to think and teach in a manner that Really explores how people are are um, are i guess imprisoned that 's the word that comes to mind or or stuck in a chasm when they have these multiple identities right so it really talks about how anti racist discourse really centers men of color black men, and how feminist discourse centers white women and then you have these women of color who are falling into a chasm and are up, upholding these discourses right but aren 't seen by these discourses and so the way that i that influences me in the academy, in the classroom is to really acknowledge like who is speaking, who is not being seen by me, by their peers and also by the curriculum, right? There's also structural intersectionality, which talks about, we have all these ways in which the structures of higher education, the structures of the US really benefit those who have privilege because we are mapping our resources onto the most privileged groups. So for instance, sexual violence resource centers very much center on white women and white women's survivorhood. They don't account for intergenerational trauma. They don't account for the ways that parents aren't often going to be disclosed to because there may be shame uh, within the culture, right? And so the way that I think about that in the classroom is again, like what is going on in the lives of students and how are resources that we're putting on our syllabus, right, so the Center for Accessible Education, how are they not so accessible to these students of color, to these queer students, to these queer trans students of color, right, that I'm teaching? Um, And then finally, there's representation representational intersectionality, which really gets at how, you know, for for a short way to kind of condense it is how our culture, our society is riddled with stereotypes that these students are bringing into the classroom and very much stereotypes of their own cultural, own racial identity, right? And that they're adopting these and behaving in certain ways. And so it's very much, how do I dispel these stereotypes? How do I push against them? How do we talk about How do I allow students to talk about like, whoa, my culture says and told me this or socialized me in this way and that's what I'm bringing into the classroom and this is what I'm, this is the meaning I'm making of this. So those are just some of the ways that I I put intersectionality into the class a little bit more directly.
3: That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Saran, what are your thoughts? Um, So a couple of things with, um, yeah, intersectionality, I think. Professor Crenshaw would also argue that it's gotten the buzzword kind of um, open air quotes a lot in terms of how it is applied in research um, and how it isn't named. And, you know, uh, for the better part of doing this research study that came out recently um, with some of the sister scholars and I, when we looked at 30 years of research and across these 680 articles some things that were pervasive that really were illuminated even through that research process, which took us about four years, is that each of us really underwent so many critical changes within how we really were, Um, I think, that much more intentional about the way in which we not just teach, study, research, and became consumers of intersectional work and were deliberate in how we were gonna assign, um, do our assessments, right? In that way, who were we naming? No, I'll be very honest. I'm very, I'm biased to two categories of um, research subjects which are black women, black Caribbean women in particular. And when that happens, my, expertise are definitively locked into that area and i'm saying this because in doing this i am reminded that for us to teach in a way that is edifying and strength-based focus we are centering also aspects of who we are so when just talked about this theory becomes and this framing and the three prongs of the original framing becomes like embodied text embodied theory it's true Um, It's to a a strength of us, but it's also to a fault. And the reason why I would only say fault or challenge is really because that's the that's my prism, that's my lens. That's the way in which I look through, think through and want to work through. And so when I'm talking about research and literature and trying to pull on it, I do worry about myself falling into the exclusionary category to be quite honest, because I am centered on black feminist, especially Afro-Caribbean feminist theories and how that centers and does not center in work and everything that belongs to that. The literature going back, whether it's colonial, diasporic, across the diaspora, post-diasporic, etc., And so that's where my area is. And so I find myself constantly, and this is what I was talking about, that work in progress. I find myself constantly wanting to push my students to think in that way. What is their specialty? Are they understanding and knowing who they are at the core and thereby researching, writing, knowing their purpose as well? And that's hard because I am biased towards that lens. And it's a very singular lens. It is Afro-Caribbean woman in particular and our experiences, right? And what that signals for me constantly is trying to tap myself to be more open, more guided, more inclusive. Um, But going back to, is this enough? Can it be enough for white men studying white men? It's enough, right? (laughs) And there is no shame on it. There is no feeling of inadequacies when you look through these lens you want to say to yourself well you know what this is my focus this is all i can this all i can give you right now this is my specialty area this is all i think through work through and know through um but i find that in our institutions that imprisonment that jess was saying is echoing what professor um laurie patton has said davis has said is institutionalized sanctioned violence on us, both in the political, structural, and representational. That we are constantly having to go above and beyond, work twice as much because the policies just aren't fit for us to do, do the research that we want to do that's embodied in who we are. It's almost like we have to feel ashamed to do that in many ways. I find that here at UConn, I found it previously at my institution as well, because doing that type of research for whatever reason just isn't enough. And um, I grapple with that as a tenured professor, trying to find that space of saying that no, it is enough. It needs to be enough, because had I been white and male and hetero, it would be enough. But it is, I've found it in so many instances intersectionality isn't enough, um, saying that you're a CRT scholar isn't enough. And I'm saying it not because of our purview, because of our lenses, but how we're also viewed in the academy. So when you first asked about how the academy is gonna receive these scholars, the academy is gonna be the very, the very body, the very structural and political body that is spoken about intersectionality that will reject these scholars, even with the happy talk of doing it because they can't solely focus on what they embody and what they want to do.
1: That's fascinating. Thank you so much for your insightful answers. But for sure, I can pick up that the both of you bring not only a breadth of experience, but also a, a true passion for what you investigate, not only what you investigate, but how you, how you put it into practice. What experiences do you bring into the classroom and how do you think that came to influence your way of teaching and your way of practicing anti-racist teaching?
3: So um, I think there was, um, I've lived in a couple of different countries in the world, hence the global lens I do have on a lot of things. And one particular country, I won't out them, (laughs) I should probably, but I won't. Um, One particular country I was called the N-word. Um, walking down by a group of skinheads. And I was studying at their most formidable institution and the actual countries in Central Europe. So there's not too many, right? And that was at that moment, I thought to myself, and I was getting my second master's degree at the time. And I thought to myself, my goodness, (laughs) I'm getting a second master's degree, but all I'm ever seeing outwardly is the N-word, right? And what, I mean, and the visceral threat not just the emotional, psychological threat, but the physical harm. Um, So when I, at that point, I had only studied business, international relations, because those were my focus points. Education was not in it, to be quite honest with you. But it was seemingly at that point, I questioned Everything about understanding why and what I'm supposed to be doing in an international plane, no matter, you know, going to their most prestigious institution, it didn't matter. Because outwardly, I would always be viewed through the eyes of these white supremacists, literally white supremacists. And so at that point, started this real shift in my entire educational pathway, Um, how could I leverage education for economic transformation and development in um, global southern countries, to be quite honest. So that was the pathway that really did that. And then when I got into the program, I started to really look through that. There was a course um, that Professor Tewitt taught that it was a social, historical, cultural, just can't help me. I think you took it as well, <laughs> but it, he had us do our autobiographical journeys. And I'll always tell people that that was the most pivotal assignment I've ever done to date because that autobiographical um, narrative that we had to do was then, then going to be deconstructed through a critical race lens. And essentially what it did was tear apart every uh, nostalgia and nostalgic memory of your educational beginnings. And it ripped it apart, even in an international space where I've spent majority of my schooling outside of the United States. And so what that did was signal that, oh my goodness, education is pervasively racist and colonialist. And there is, and before that, we didn't have the lingo of anti-blackness um, then. But when I look back at it now, what most of us have gone through is essentially an anti-blackness curriculum. And it was very pervasive in my curriculum going through a you know, former British colony and even into the United States and when I was in Central Europe. And so it tore all the nostalgia away and it ripped it apart um, for us to rebuild and for us to rebuild the narrative through a critical conscious lens. And so I thought about what that did and how it created um, this kind of real answer to that day when I was called the N-word, walking down those streets. And I thought, this is it. This is why I need to do this, is to figure out one's purpose in really changing the status quo. And so, yeah, that's that's part of the journey and the continued <laughs> journey, I would argue.
2: Yeah, I love, I love hearing the journey, Saran, but also that the journey involves some of the s- similar people, same people. Um, so I think we've like tiptoed around it, but Saran and I overlapped in our PhD program for a year um, at University of Denver. And we've mentioned a few people that I think have been influential to our research and our teaching and um, our time in the academy. So Dr. Frank Tuitt and Dr. Lori Patton Davis. Um, and so I, you know, I bring a lot of stuff to the classroom, <laughs> um, in the sense of my own stuff. And one thing that Dr. Tuitt immediately taught, taught me and all of the students, and I actually don't think I ever had Dr. Tuet as a. Professor, but he was somewhat of a supervisor when I worked in my internship at University of Denver, but he was very explicit and has written on the topic of, of being, you know, don't ask your students to self-reflect and share their own experiences if you're not also going to self-reflect and share your own experiences. And so that is something that I bring into the classroom and I learned directly from his writing. Um, the, I, I mean, basically, the, I teach in the way that I teach because of the way that I was taught. Um, and it isn't actually very much like the negative experiences that have informed it. I have been very, very blessed in my academic, my educational tra- trajectory to have amazing courses, amazing professors. Um, I went to a liberal arts college, Occidental College in LA. And I still remember one of the most critical turning points was a course entitled Whiteness. And it was taught by Dr. Elmer Griffin. And it was dialogue based and it just blew my mind we were reading James Baldwin and and other influential writers and then from there I went to my master's program and was taught by um Sue Rankin, Robert Reason and Dr. Lee Dr. Kimberly Griffin and again they're teaching I wouldn't say it was anti-racist, but it was very much at that time social justice focused because social justice was the buzzword at the moment, right? So that's interesting too to see the trajectory. So social justice. And then I go to University of Denver and that was really the turning point because I had really the most critical and crucial person um, in my educational journey and in the reason that I teach in the way I do is Dr. Lori Patton Davis because she just really st- like sticks her feet in teaching. I mean, and in that syllabus and she is un- unapologetic. You know, she says white, white supremacy. She tells you why she's saying and doing the things that she is and doing, doing the things with the syllabus. And so um, it really is about these, these individuals, these people of color, these professors of color that have taught me by doing um, to, to teach, to teach in the manner that I teach. I, I wish, just, you know, side note, I guess, somewhat and not. I wish that, um, you know, conferences, we could, we could somehow talk more about teaching, but do it in a manner of like going to someone's course, right? Like I want Lori Patton Davis and, and Frank Tuitt to like joint teach a course session at ASH, right? And that I learned so much more by doing and seeing, like, I'm not going to go to a To a session on like here's how you do this but i want to sit in someone's class and i want to learn i miss that so much so um, that is so true jess
3: oh my goodness that is so true yeah
0: a hundred percent i agree with you and that is that directly speaks to my my research heart because i love um doing research on college teaching and the only way i get insight into it is getting in the classroom like almost all my research is inside of the classroom, because there's no other way from, from my perspective. Um, but interestingly that you bring them both up because they're our next guests. So I'm so excited that um, you're both bringing them up and giving them a warm introduction because Dr. Lori Pan Davis and Dr. Frank Tuit will be co-teaching in a way because they'll be joining together. Um, on the next episode. And so we'll be learning from them about what they do. And so thank you for lifting them up and in this episode and getting our audience ready for their awesomeness next time around. I know Omar has one more question to ask you, and then I'm, I'm going to wrap it up for us. This has been such a great conversation. Omar, you wanted to ask one more thing?
1: Yes. gracias, milagros. And, and thank you both, uh, Jessica and, and Saran, for your thoughtful answers. Um, the both of you touched on something that I found to be interesting, and it's something I'm delving more into and in, in my research interest, and it's how geography impacts the implicate, or it can impact the implementation. Previous to my transition to UConn, I was working at a community college and anti-racist teaching was very much a buzzword. And I saw it used and implemented in different ways in Arizona, as opposed to what I'm seeing in the state of Connecticut and at UConn specifically. Um, however, you know, I've, I've come to realize that anti-racist teaching has numerous gaps. And specifically at educational institutions with Jessica, you mentioned that you experienced yourself at the University of Kansas, whether it's gaps in, you know, student development, gaps in departments, even in the curriculum and what what's seen. And you know, it's interesting because like that transformative experience, it's a process and it takes time and pulling from one of my adult learning classes, there's this disorienting dilemma that needs to take place for individuals to kind of be like in shock. And then they kind of like learn to reason and synthesize that experience and then they can do something with it. Hopefully, that's like best case scenario, right? Um, and just thinking about 2020, like I think my disorienting, mis- my disorienting dilemma has been COVID-19, <laughs> and I don't know if it's in the same way for the three of you, but you know, it's it's uh, you know, it, it's just been so interesting to think back, and it's like, okay, well, we've survived these last nine months. Like, what have we learned from it? You know, How, have we become better human beings? Like, I definitely have come to value and, and love my friends and family more than ever before, and their health. It takes the meaning like stay healthy or be safe to a whole new like level. Um, And and on that note just to ask a contemporary question, how do the both of you believe that COVID-19 has impacted the field of anti-racist teaching?
2: Sure I think um, you know I don't know how to answer this question yet because I'm gonna have to reflect if and when we are no longer online teaching because of COVID. I to be so in some ways I want to say it hasn't impacted it like of course it's impacted it but when it comes to anti-racist teaching it doesn't matter where you are in in the sense of like online or not um, you know it, it, you should still be implementing as much as you can some of these tools that are going to lead to deconstructing racism and white supremacy um, and so that's that's in one vein I actually think in some ways it's made it even more interesting and maybe even more I'm more able to to influence or do these things. Because for one for one thing, um, now everybody has their pronouns or should have their pronouns right on the screen. Right now I have Jessica Harris, she, her. Um, I also have been telling students and want to continue to tell students, put on what land you're occupying as well, right, to there. And so it's just a kind of a heightened layer of being like, okay, well, how can we actually think about anti-racist teaching in a different manner online? And so I just wanna say it's, It has changed it. I don't fully know how yet at this point, you know, I think just teaching in general, it has changed and shifted. Um, But I just want to stress that anti racist teaching isn't geographically or physically bound right that we should be doing it and we're trying to do it in every space that we can. Um, And I think I'm going to be very transparent that absolutely with faculty who had to push their class online in March, April, May, even the summer, there should be some leeway there. But at this point, we've been doing it for a while. And I think that there shouldn't be an excuse for A, not teaching in a manner that is serving students and B, isn't teaching in a manner that's anti-racist, right? Or
3: deconstructing white supremacy and racism. So definitely echo um, everything just said. I would argue that anti-racist teaching is the full, it's the full embodied experience as well. And I miss, I absolutely miss seeing the body language, the emotive coding of students um, when they are grimacing with a concept, a context and wrestling with um, a reading. And in many ways, this COVID-19 and online platform has provided a literal screen a literal screen that they can hide from doing that. And as the professor, if they go all blank on the screen, and even if they their faces are there, you can't see the visceral reaction. What are you feeling? Having them sit within it, not even have to say it, but for it to be completely emotive. And I miss that. I miss seeing that. I miss understanding that. I miss the body vibe of that and vibing what what I call in Jamaica vibing our students to understand the communal space the environment and has the learning environment been disrupted it is very I've found that COVID has made it difficult to to check the temperature of the room and the space because it's it's just hard It, it was hard before but it is impossible sometimes when it's cloaked and their screens are off, and you're like, yeah, you can't really get to them. You're like, I want to test the temperature, but you're not letting me test it. And I can't push you because if I push you too hard, you're gonna be like, whoa, lady, whoa. So. I can't do that in this space. And I have not figured out how to do it in this space. So that's one big piece of it is the body language is missing. That emotional connection is really missing. The dissonance of that emotional connection is missing as well. Um, but I will echo exactly what just said that it should be, it should be happening regardless and integrative. But the other piece about this that's combated, which I think some of us may have experienced, um, I'm doing a photo voice study with some colleagues in the Caribbean. I'm looking at Caribbean um, adult learners. And we're discovering this loss of self and loss of their former selves and the the need for grieving and how grief has become so personified and synonymous in a COVID era. And there is an interesting trend that I'm seeing in that students who are trying to also go through this process with us are grieving, but they don't know what they're grieving. So they're angry, they're anxious, they're fearful, and you're seeing all of those tenets, and you're trying to reach, but the reach is that much more difficult in, on a screen
0: seems like there's a lot of emotional connection that's also part of the teaching that's hard to do via a screen you know and and I really appreciate you bringing that to the table well we're wrapping up our podcast at this point and I want to close out with just asking you a very brief piece of advice that you would give our audience and our audience might be all on the you know different ranges of skill talents knowledge what's one thing Um, That you would share with our audience, particularly for someone who wants to enact anti-racist teaching with a focus on intersectionality. What's one thing you want to leave the audience with? I'll start with Jessica, please. Um,
2: uh, This is the one thing I didn't really think of, but I would, you know, I would read. I would read works by Derek Bell, by Kimberly Crenshaw, by Mari Matsuda. Um, Sure, also Ibram X. Kendi, uh, who has written a book on anti-racist teaching. But also from there, you don't have to adhere to any one definition or any one reading. It's really find what works for you, find what speaks to you, find what works for the students that
3: you're you're interacting with. And so read, do the work. I would say in addition to all the critical scholarship that Jess just named, which are profound, you must do the self-work to know why exactly you're gonna do this, or else we've we've been both taught that our intent will not equalize to our impact and we can actually cause much more harm. And so if we're gonna do this work, you gotta first understand why you're doing this, what's your purpose in doing this, your intentionality in doing this, and doing the hard work. And once you've solidified that say it out loud, please. (laughs) Say it out loud, hear yourself say it before you go and say it in front of a classroom filled with minds that you can do a lot of impact on. So I would say that really doing the self-work, the hard work to understand what is your purpose in doing anti-racist teaching first.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. That's valuable advice all around. And I'm so grateful to both of you for all the wisdom that you dropped on this um, episode. Dr. Stewart, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for being a part of it. um, this first episode. And Omar, thank you for co hosting with me. You're fantastic. And I really love the questions you added to the conversation.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks to all of you. If you want to learn more, Check out our podcast website at cetl.uconn.edu. There you will find the Heart Podcast banner and a list of resources noted during this episode.
0: And stay tuned for our next episode focused on how intersectionality can be a lens for anti-racist teaching within STEM. This next episode will air on Wednesday, February 24th, and features Dr. Stephanie Santos from the University of Connecticut, as well as Dr. Nicole Joseph and Dr. Luis Leiva from Vanderbilt University.
1: Before we close out, we want to express our deep appreciation to our guests, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Harris, and also thank our colleagues at the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut for all of their support and assistance with this podcast. Because it takes a village, and it takes heart.